If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Jim Hill, and there is so much animation news that has gone on since our last podcast. Drew, we got, what, five minutes before you have to head out for your next junket? I mean, it's it's crazy, Jim. It's The summer movie season is in full swing, and I'm swinging to, to catch up with it. The film to catch right now is Incredibles 2, which I just checked before we got started here. Box Office Mojo lists through Wednesday of this week, and as of Wednesday this week, Incredibles has pulled in $516.2 million domestic, which makes it the top grossing animated film of all time, or at least domestically, right? Yeah, not adjusted for inflation. It'll be interesting to see what it does internationally. I doubled back and checked on how the original Incredibles did back in November of 2004. That made $261.4 million domestic. So the sequel, 14 years later, has double the the domestic take or damn near where overseas it made 371.5 million so if you follow that pattern that it, it does roughly one and a third of the business it's looking like Incredibles could potentially surpass Pixar's other biggest worldwide hits and that was Finding Dory which was 1 billion 20 million the big one to beat would be Toy Story 3 which is uh, 1 billion 60 million and you think it's going to do it I was talking with folks at the studio and they were actually initially concerned especially after solo there right. was a fear that Infinity War had sucked all of the air out of the room and you know, oh my God, what's going to happen to Incredibles 2? Oh my God, what's going to happen with Ant-Man and the Wasp? And it turns out, nothing! They all did well. So, you know, it was Solo that was kind of the misfire. And there is kind of a concern, you know, because superhero movies either do ridiculously well overseas or not well at all. What's your take? Do you think Incredibles will do well overseas? I think so. I mean, it looks like it's a little bit slower probably than they wanted mm. it to. But, I mean, it still has to open in so many markets as well. So I think it's going to keep keep going, keep going, and it'll be interesting to see where it ends up at the end of the summer once every child has seen it. <laughs> yeah. I remember when the first film came out in 2004, and this was well before the launch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So here was this superhero family, and everyone loved them, and so, of course, the Disney parks wanted to leap on them and get them into ride shows and attractions, and for various reasons, that didn't happen. But there was a lot of stuff developed. Here we are, sequels hit. It's doing incredibly well stateside. And especially in Florida, where Disney is kind of handcuffed by the master licensing agreement with Universal, it's like, ooh, they really like The Incredibles. We could bring those into the park. The folks who are working on Phase 3 of Disney Hollywood Studios expansion, what would replace Launch Bay and be built on the site of the Magic of Disney Animation Tour, this is not going to notice. 
they're kind of reaching back into the draw and pulling out all of the incredible stuff. But you actually, on the other hand, have actually gotten to experience an incredible base attraction because you went to the Pixar Pier Media Days, didn't you? Yes, I was invited thanks to our good friends at Disneyland mm-hmm. and got to ride the Incredicoaster, which is really amazing, and experience the whole new Pixar Pier land. And, and if the, the response to that section of Disney's California Adventure is any indication I think that The Incredibles have a long life in the theme park space because the way that they were able to interject this story into California Screaming, which was just a seaside mm-hmm. amusement park. I mean, that that ride goes back to what the development of the Boardwalk yep. standalone mm-hmm. complex, right? Yeah. And then and then it was a part of Disney's America, mm-hmm. and now, now it's a California adventure. But, I mean, I cannot wait for you to ride it. I know how much you love the Guardians of the Galaxy retheme mm-hmm. of Tower of Terror. It's sort of the same thing where you have great IP, a lot of story, and it is just the most fun. It's so great. Now, you rode the two earlier iterations of, of California Screaming, right? And, you know, the, oh, yes. The, the opening yeah. day version and then the sort of updated version that had Neil Patrick Harris as the voice of Launch in the Countdown. Yes, and I, and maybe the best part of the Incredicoaster is that that horrible music is gone. Oh. That kind of rinky-dinky mm. seaside music it's got a brand new piece of music from Michael Giacchino, who did the score for Incredibles and Incredibles mm-hmm. 2. All of the voice cast is back, too, so it's really funny to hear Holly Hunter mm-hmm. on a theme park attraction. Mm-hmm. We got to go the next time you're out here, because it's just a blast. Okay. When you sit on the outside of it, I mean, for example, Edna Mode as a walk-around character, did you get to see her when, when you were at the park? Yes. Yeah, I, I took pictures with her. I'll, I'll, we'll have to put it in our, our show notes. I thought she was going to talk sort of like the Kylo Ren character and stuff like that, but she does not talk. She just sort of walks around. But it's a great sculpt of the headpiece, and it's pretty fun. Okay. Based on the lines, the most popular new attraction as part of Pixar Pier isn't even a ride. It's this Jack-Jack cookie (laughs) num-nums. Yeah, I tried the regular, the chocolate chip cookie. Okay. But what people are really freaking out about is the gluten-free cookie, which my fiance mm-hmm. Katie, who you know and mm-hmm. love, has celiac. Mm-hmm. So she was over the moon about this cookie. All right. It's got blackberry jam inside? or What is this? Yes. It sort of looks like the logo almost, where it's got the little circle in the middle, and that's where the, the blackberry jam is. And it was a big hit. And I am so proud of Disney for catering to that gluten-free clientele because I, I tell you the the restaurants and everyone is are so accommodating and it's it's a really people don't think about the Disney parks as a place to go for people with a food allergy but it really it's true and it's amazing so kudos to them now you got to do the full ride so you did the what is it the lamp lounge which is oh yeah the sort of reimagining of avalon cove is sort of like the ultimate pixar insider eatery yes we even saw the secret room which i don't know if you have heard about that oh okay well no uh there's a secret room sort of back sort of going where the cast members only area is you have to punch in a secret code spin a door and it opens up onto this private little room with drawings from all of the Pixar animators on the wall. And best part of all, it has a private kind of balcony that overlooks the launch of the Incredicoaster, which as you've seen from the videos, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. has this dazzling new dash kind of running effect when you take off where it looks like you're 
ride vehicle is kicking up water. It's really amazing. And and the best part about this room is you can just get it if you're it, just anybody can request it. So it's really neat. Got it. Yet, of course, that's kind of a nod to the Love Lounge, the famous hidden room at Pixar right. up in Emeryville, though. Given what Pixar is dealing with right now, I would imagine nobody talks about the Love Lounge much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've talked on earlier shows about the coming change out at Pixar, and, and as we predicted, it was Pete Docter, and, and kind of a surprise that Jennifer Lee ended up as the one and only at Disney, because initially you and I were hearing about like committees of three or, or that sort of thing, weren't we? Or Right, yeah, we were hearing about Rich Moore, who is great. Mm-hmm. And who who was the other person that they were thinking about throwing in there? I I had heard Chris Buck, but you know, again, it was Jennifer was always a part of it. Rich was always a part of it. I had heard Byron Howard at one point. Okay, that makes sense. Whoever has made a billion dollar earner at the studio, step up. Right. (laughs) It was kind of the same thing up at Pixar. It was you know going to be Andrew Stanton and Pete and. I'm, tr- I'm blanking the third one. I want to say Josh Cooley, but I don't think so. Anyway, no okay. committee, just one. You know, so we get Jennifer, and then we get Pete up at Pixar, and and I, I'm sorry, I kind of feel bad for Pete now. Because, first of all, you know, there was that wonderful quote that was out there about how I guess he's got a movie that, what did he say? I I hope they let me finish it. Right. Never mind the fact that Pete has done some absolutely wonderful films for Pixar, which is why I just kind of feel sad that he might get, as a director, sucked out of the rotation and now have to be the sort of the go-to guy who has to fix story and, you know, make decisions about voice casting and that sort of thing. I mean, that's when you're you're the head honcho of a studio, you're not really as creative. I mean, you get to fix, you get to sit in meetings and make suggestions, or you're the one who has to go, no, we can't make this movie and all that. But there was a, a series of stories last week where somebody had flashed on the notion that Pete was the first openly Christian director at Pixar. And I I just read these stories and went, oh, can we not put that on the pile as well? This poor guy has to follow John Lasseter. And that's kind of a two-pronged thing that he has to do because John, for all of his picadillos and that sort of thing, made some amazing movies you know helped make cg into a thing if you look back at the history of the toy stories it was a very big deal to try to do the first feature-length film entirely in cg and we're suddenly back in snow white country you know people can't stare at cg for 90 minutes their heads will explode right (laughs) so the characters won't be warm because the surfaces are are so hard and all that so he's got to follow that and all those amazing films that were produced at pixar under John's reign but at the same time he's got to clean up the mess I mean so it's living up to the films that John made plus addressing the cultural issues and and now he's going to be the guy who's he's an openly Christian director it's like oh come on just let the poor guy make movies don't put you know now well because Pete Doctor is making you know movies you know they're all going to be Christian friendly or things that Christians can embrace because well, you were pointing out that they've already been doing that. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you go back to the release of Wally, Andrew Stanton, who is a pretty outspoken Christian, talked pretty openly about the sort of biblical overtones of Wally. Obviously, there's a character named Eve. It certainly explains why two sexless robots were given gender <laughs> tags in that movie. And I guess apparently, uh, you know, one of the story artists brought up the fact that 
Eve carrying the green shrubbery looked like the Dove of Peace. And so that was something that was amplified during production as well to reinforce these kind of Christian undertones or overtones as they were. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he has been pretty outspoken. When when all this stuff came up about Pete being the first openly Christian mm-hmm. Pixar director, I just said, did we all forget about Wally? Maybe we did. This is not something new. And, and so maybe, maybe Andrew can help him kind of steer around potential controversy okay. just to make the best movies. Now, to sort of double back to what we were talking previously about the Incredibles and Disney Hollywood Studios and and that sort of thing, because we've just seen Toy Story Land open up. Between our last time we recorded, we also learned that Disney is bringing a Cars-themed attraction to Disney Hollywood Studios. So only the, the, the Lightning McQueen Racing Academy, I believe it is, but there is no racing at the Racing Academy. This is that black box building that they built at the uh, Disney Hollywood Studios two and three years ago. They had a sort of a a villain's meet and greet in there for the longest time. This is where basically you're going to go and have an opportunity to interact with the full-size versions of Lightning McQueen, Mater, Cruz Ramirez. You go in, there's a, a little show, and then you can get your picture taken with these characters, interact with them, that sort of thing, and then they cycle the next group in. But this is the farthest point for the Pixar characters away from uh, Toy Story Land, and the eventual plan is that there will be a walkway that will take you from Toy Story Land that will connect through to Sunset Boulevard. And it all the entire length of this thing will be Pixar IP. Bob Chapek, very excited about Incredibles 2. You know, so it's like, pull out all of the incredible stuff that we didn't back do back in 2004. The people at Pixar who are now working on the Monsters, Inc. TV series, which is supposed to debut in 2019 on the Disney streaming service, They've been like, whoa, 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 we're doing really cool stuff. And we have that Monsters coaster and don't go fully Incredibles on us. You know, we were supposed to also go into the studios at one point. In fact, where Toy Story Mania is right now, or Midway Mania was with the the infamous Toy Story Doors coaster ride was supposed to go back in 2008. Oh, wow. It's kind of a fluid situation because with Disney, especially with Bob Chapek in charge of parks, Bob constantly looks at the grosses, constantly looks at merch sales. And that really drives what he signs off on going into the park. So that's why we're seeing a lot of Frozen stuff. You know, why, you know, every time you turn around, there's another Toy Story land opening at, you know, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Paris, you know, the like. Well, do we know who who's doing the animation for the, the Monsters, Inc. show? I've been trying to get a handle on that. I hit up the usual suspects. For example, the folks who do all that, the wonderful work on Gravity Falls or... Oh, oh, speaking of which, little side note here, folks. You've already gotten a hold of the Blu-ray? The complete series, yeah, the Blu-ray. Yeah, it comes out on July 24th from Shout Factory, and it is incredible. There's commentary on every single episode. There's a, like, hour-and-a-half-long documentary that is really incredible and really gets into the nuts and bolts of it. Tons of behind-the-scenes footage new interviews with Alex and everybody else involved in the show. It is a total love letter to that incredible series. And 
Also very much primes you for the forthcoming graphic novel that he has written with four new uh, Gravity Falls stories coming out, I think the same day as the box set. So a lot of cool Gravity Falls stuff coming out. I know we're both huge fans, so this was a thrill to get to see early. This has literally been years in the making. What I love about this is we've just recently seen the first DuckTales set of the the reboot of the series. And and, and don't get me wrong, it's nice to have those episodes and it's nice to have some classic episodes. But, you know, you you just, when you look at that series and how much fun it is, it's just sort of like, this seems so bare bones. Yeah, give us the whole series (laughs) or whatever. I don't get it. But maybe this will will open up for other series to be released on Blu-ray through third parties because it's just crazy to me that Disney is not putting this out themselves Mm -hmm. because I think it's going to sell a billion copies and the reviews are going to be huge. Alex is doing a signing at Comic-Con next weekend of the set at the Shout Factory booth. Mm -hmm. It's really exciting. But the other, I forgot, we forgot to talk about Mm -hmm. this off-air too, is maybe the biggest animation news that happened when we were Mm -hmm. off was that Toon Studio shut down yeah and you and i were both at the d23 expo last august and you know that's when they ran the teaser for the unnamed planes jet sequel whatever the hell it was right i think you and i both talked about there was one more tinkerbell movie coming Oh, yeah. yeah. You and I both know that Toon Studios and Disney Television Animation share the same campus. Yes, I would, st- I would steal snacks from there. <laughs> uh, when I worked at DCPI, they had great candy. So I'm, I'm obviously, there's, a, there's something personal about this closure that, you know, hits me hard. But then mm-hmm. they share the, the big cafeteria, too, over there. So do you think that this was a mistake, given how much content they're going to need for the streaming service and other areas of the company? And... How is this connected to what will happen with Blue Sky when Disney finally acquires Fox? That's what I was asking when I was calling friends of the company. It just seems the timing of this just seemed a trifle suspect. I mean, the very thing you're talking about. Here's Disney racking up its digital streaming service. In fact, I, I wanted to talk about that. Did you see the announcement just yesterday about Togo? Yes, with Willem Dafoe. But here's the thing. Okay, Togo, for those of you who don't know, is it, it's actually sort of a story that if you've seen the DreamWorks that did this, Balto? Oh, yes, I remember Balto. It was Universal. It was, it was Amblin. Amblin. Animation, there we go, Amblin. Yeah. Okay, so Amblin did the, you know, the story of Balto but it turns out Balto wasn't the only dog that was carrying, you know, serum during the 1925 race to Nome. It turns out that there was an, another dog, Togo, who actually went the really dangerous route. And Disney actually acquired the story back in October of 2015 and was developing it as a live action feature release for Walt Disney Pictures. They kept working on it, but they never got to the point where they were going to turn the key where once they got the digital streaming service up and running and realized, well, we're going to need Disney-esque films to put on Disney's digital streaming service, it's like, well, let's do Togo. Right. So they've cast William Dafoe. They'll start shooting it later this year. It will be available when the, when the service goes live in 2019. So if you have Jets that far along in story, if you have your Tinkerbell movie that you were going to do at Disney Toon Studios that far along why wouldn't you 
at least press forward with production of those. It's so you have them right. at least for this digital streaming service. I mean, you and I both know that one of the factors that came into play here is what's happened in regard to DVD and Blu-ray sales. That to circle back to the Gravity Falls super deluxe set that Shout Factory has put out. When I've talked with people on Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment is like there is in fact a market out there for a super deluxe set of this or that but you know the hard reality is you know we would only move 300,000 400,000 units and the Disney company kind of considers that chump change right yeah that's the money we leave on the dresser the big bills go in the wallet I don't want to make pennies on something that's really really good I want to make billions so Mm -hmm. that's kind of where we are but again, I, I really, 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 really want this Gravity Falls set to hit because poor Mr. Peel, who's trying to get that, that Gargoyles film up off of the ground, if he, oh, yeah. it would be so much easier to make a Gargoyles movie if he could point to, well, you know, they actually buy the Gargoyles movies, so, you know, you, the DVD, so let's go make that movie. But Yeah, that would be amazing, because I think even when Disney was putting out, like, season sets of some of the Disney afternoon shows, I don't think any of them are complete. No. They would sort of taper off, no. and so... But are you confident that Blue Sky will be a part of the Disney portfolio after the Fox acquisition? If only for the Ice Age characters and films. Okay. Because that's actually the highest grossing animated film series of all all time. And I can't see Disney walking away from that IP. In fact, it's been so funny talking with folks at Disney because, again, they can't really talk about what they want to do post-Fox acquisition, because, of course, here's Comcast coming in, making its bid, which forced Disney to jump its bid to $71 billion with a huge cash component, and now the battle over Sky that's going on. Right. I was talking with somebody at the studio, and they were like, yeah, we've, we've kind of had conversations about Anastasia. Well, she is a princess, and we are buying it, so does that make her a Disney princess? And it's like... Well, no, but, you know, we really feel that between the the Anastasia Broadway show and all that, that there's a lot of money to be made off of rebranding that character as a Disney property. Oh, yeah. People love that character. Yeah. And and likewise with Manny and Sid and Diego, you know, the characters from Ice Age. It's such a gimme to bring those characters into the parks. But nobody at Disney, it's like, until we actually finish this deal. And and right now, there's a belief because it, Comcast seems to have really laser-focused in on Sky, that the hope is that you no longer want Fox, or at least you no longer want the film assets of Fox. So we'll get those, and that'll help with the streaming service. But there's still this certain level of terror that Comcast has supposedly been meeting with outside investors and some people with some fairly deep pockets to line up additional financing and there's a fear out ahead of that shareholders meeting that comcast is going to be the spoiler it's just a week or 10 days before that meeting they're going to announce another bid and you know they're going to have to kick the can down the road anybody you talk with at disney they're like we want to get moving on this but we can't do anything until the shareholders have voted and it's accepted and we go. I didn't get the confirmation I was looking for in regard to Toon Studios that this was a direct result of so many people at the company just view it as 
short-sighted that at the very least there were these two projects that were ready to go and that they could have easily found a home at the Disney digital streaming service to just shut it down and to let that talent walk out the door is just kind of sad. Yeah, there were a lot of great people working over there. And, and the history of that building is really unique, too, because a lot of uh, Zootopia and Wreck-It Ralph 2 were developed there while the animation campus in Burbank was being renovated. So I feel like uh, it would be a shame to like to let that space go empty, too, because it's it's so kind of historic in the company. Well, never never but. mind that. Isn't Wasn't that one of the the satellite buildings that Imagineering moved into when they were ramping up to build Walt Disney World in, in 69, 70, 71. And didn't that used to be a casket factory? Is is that the... Is that what it was? <sighs> I got to do my research. I gotta, I tell you what, <laughs> you know, we'll do a proper show about, you know, the history of, of Disney too, which by the way, I know it's really popular to sort of bash cheap wolves instead of sequels. Oh, right. But yeah. no, the folks at Disney Toon Studio, particularly the last 10 years or so, did such great work on projects that you sort of sat outside of and went, I, I, really, another fairies film? But right. they did great work. They really did. And they're a genuinely talented bunch. And I'm, I'm just kind of sorry to see them walk out the door. Well, hopefully they'll have different roles in the company elsewhere because they were great and they should not be let go. Speaking of things that are being let loose, so to speak, Hotel Transylvania 3 Summer Vacation rolling out in the theaters. And you got to sit down with, with Kennedy to talk about this movie. Yeah, well, the movie's great. Have you, you haven't seen it yet. I've not seen it yet. And before okay. you talk about it, we have to do a commercial break. So All okay, right. just hang on a sec, folks. I'll hold that thought. We'll be back with Summer Vacation. And we're back. Okay, this is our third Hotel Transylvania film. We have the the first one. It was kind of a troubled production. I mean, I remember. Yeah. I remember back when the original conceit of this movie was what that Frankenstein had a hotel and Dracula had a hotel and and they were battling for customers and there were a lot of really bad ideas. Oh yeah, I think Gendy was the sixth filmmaker. Mm-hmm on the Hotel Transylvania concept. And I guess he just sort of slid over to it after an original idea that he was working on wasn't panning out in time. He'd said, well, let me let me take a crack at this. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being huge. I mean, this is a huge franchise. And it's this new one is the best one, I think. It's certainly the most Gendy. I don't know if you remember the last time, the la- when Hotel Transylvania 2 came out in September of 2015, mm-hmm. there were some very public sort of disagreements about uh, his relationship with Robert Smigel. Yeah. Who's one of the co-writers. And then that was sort of amplified by the Sony hack, Mm -hmm. which uncovered some emails about Mm. that situation, which were pretty unpleasant. I I can't tell you who told me these stories, but basically on the first Hotel Transylvania, didn't Gennady sort of trick Adam Sandler into giving the performance that made the film so effective? I mean, that they just kept Adam in the booth until you know he would just sort of get tired and underpowered and that then became the sincere drac i mean Kennedy was able to sort of stitch together this wonderful performance for hotel transylvania or at least the first one and and then of course the problem with number two was that suddenly everyone realized wow we can make money off of this thing and yeah. And both Adam and again, Mr. Smigel got that much more hands-on. And 
as those emails pointed out, got really, really ugly. Yeah. I got to sit down with him for 20 Mm. minutes, and our conversation covered the gamut of his career because in the press he's saying oh I went on this cruise and that's what inspired me to come back for Hotel Transylvania 3 because if you also if you look at the press for the second one he was like there's going to be another one I'm not going to be involved with it so him coming back was a big surprise and so I said listen tell me really why you're coming back and he basically told me because he could write it himself Mm -hmm. he did not want anything from Smile or Sandler Mm -hmm. He wrote it with Michael McCullers, who's become a huge screenwriter in terms of animation. I think he's had animated movies out from every major studio besides Disney in the last few years. But he said that he was able to write sort of for the animation. His example was instead of Dracula falling in love and saying, I'm in love, mm-hmm. they do a two-minute dance sequence in Hotel Transylvania 3. And so that's the, the kind of difference. But I got a lot of great stories from him, which I had never heard before, including why he left Lucasfilm Animation because he was going to be installed as the kind of John Lasseter figure mm-hmm. at Lucasfilm Animation. And so I finally found out what, what happened there, which was kind of fascinating. Oh, please, please share. He wanted to do features. He wanted to do original features for Lucasfilm. Mm-hmm. Jim Morris, who's now at Pixar, was was leading Lucasfilm Animation at the time. And they had gone through negotiations and his wife was in San Francisco looking at houses and they were at their last meeting. It was a breakfast meeting. And George sat down at the table and said, I don't want to do movies. The future is TV. And he said at that point, he he sort of flash forwarded through the next 20 years of his life, realized he would only be working on Star Wars movies and said, I'm not into that idea. And he said that Jim Morris looked just as shocked as he was uh, at this meeting. And the project that he was developing, which I found out was a kind of action adventure Viking movie. Mm-hmm. This was before How to Train Your Dragon. Mm-hmm died at that at that breakfast table which is just heartbreaking speaking of interesting conversations with powerful moguls can you talk about mr feige oh yes he was involved in an animation studio that was called viking animation mm-hmm. i think when it closed he he said basically i'm running out of money i've got to go get a job so he goes to he meets with marvel and he meets with kevin feige mm-hmm. and he says what if we did for marvel what we did for star wars with clone wars and he said during this meeting Feige actually brought up the idea of Gendy directing the first Thor, which I had never heard oh. in my entire life, and I don't think you had no. either. But if you think about what he did, uh, you know, those Clone War shorts, oh my god. Yeah, he, he it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But what's, what's maybe even more fascinating is that Feige at this meeting suggested that he meet with Jon Favreau. Mm-hmm who supposedly looked to Clone Wars and to Samurai Jack when making Iron Man. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Oh. And, yeah. And had Gendy, Gendy came in. He shot second unit mm-hmm. on Iron Man 2. Mm-hmm. And he also blocked that incredible sequence at the end of the movie in the Japanese garden. Mm-hmm. He blocked it. He edited it together. He did the storyboards. And he said at an early version of the movie, they had recut the way that he'd done. Because he said, you know, a lot of what makes my stuff work is the way it's mm-hmm. cut. It was completely changed. And then he, he, you know, he gave the notes to Favreau. He said, I don't think this works as well. And then when he saw the final movie, they had gone back and replicated exactly what Gendy had done, <sighs> almost shot for shot. Oh, Brana, in the end, did a great job and, and set up the character and set up the world. But but a Gunnity Thor, oh my God. Yeah, it would have been really something. <laughs> the circle back to Hotel Transylvania 3 Summer Vacation. So again... I loved the first film, absolutely loved the first film. I felt 
that two was kind of a step down. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I think part of that was the behind-the-scenes stories and the, the fights for control, and because, of course, now suddenly this is a thing that makes money. And and the whole notion of, you had Mel Brooks's Nosferatu. It's like, why didn't that pay off? I have to say, in a weird sort of way, I'm actually happy to say hear what you're saying about summer vacation because in a lot of ways it was sort of like what happened last year with cars three i'm one of those people who you know cars two i i love the original cars one cars two left such a bad taste in my mouth because it was so busy and tried to be so many things and i was one of those people who went back into the third film with like and that was such a nice surprise it was such a sweet little movie and so is this the same situation we're dealing with with three? Is it, it it kind of a return to the one? Yeah, I think it's actually the maybe the best one. Really? I mean, I think you'll appreciate it from an animation standpoint. Mm-hmm. The ending in particular is incredibly kind of oversized mm-hmm. and, and will remind you of Samurai Jack mm-hmm. and Dexter's Laboratory and some of the other things that he's mm-hmm. done. And it's just really funny and really smart mm-hmm. and well done. And I think I think everyone's going to like it. And I think it's good that he kind of goes off on this no, because he said that he his next project for Sony is a new original action adventure film. He said it's like a, a computer animated Samurai Jack. And so that is very exciting to hear. He, I think this is the last time he's checked into the hotel, but okay, it's a good okay. one. Okay, well, for those of us who are still kind of mourning that we didn't get his Popeye, I'm, I'm just seeing the ads make me happy from the family walking down the deck wearing these swim fins. I don't know why that makes me laugh, but that makes me laugh. <laughs> it's because we've both been on a Disney cruise, and we well, know, there we go. We know how real that no, is. but yeah. you know, but again, and now, but cutting a trailer, cutting a, a you know a TV commercial, that sort of thing, is an art form. So, which makes me now reluctant to kind of pivot to talk about Wonder Park that we we just had the teaser trailer for this long, long, long in development Paramount Pictures animated feature, just up until six months ago. This was called Amusement Park. But it, what was it? In, in January of this year, they, Dylan Brown, the original director of it, got, well, they say he was removed for inappropriate and wanton or unwanted contact. What do you think of this teaser? We were talking about this earlier, but we have no idea who this movie is for. Mm. Like, it was done by the Spanish animation studio that did Planet 51. Mm-hmm doesn't come out until next March. Yeah. And and the other thing here worth noting is that there's an animated series that comes in the wake of this. Mm-hmm. Paramount's already announced that Nickelodeon's going to have a series based on this yet-to-be-released film. Watching the footage, it felt more like the introduction of a game. Right, yeah. Rather than a, a story. But but again, I, I want to be fair. I... I mean, I remember battling with so many people when, for example, like the initial teaser trailer came out for Frozen and people are like, oh, God, you know, it's stupid snowman and the reindeer. And what is this movie about? That turned out okay. Yeah. You always have to be careful about these things. But circling back to Hotel Transylvania, I mean, another sort of comment on our new media landscape that so... That got an animated series. Which is pretty good. But it's a prequel to right. the very first film, but Sony Pictures Animation airing on the Disney Channel. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, but that's the new landscape. You're going to have Disney 
pushing Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, you know, come December, because Marvel had a hand in producing that, and that helps push Spidey forward. But now that they've changed the release date for Mary Poppins' return, moving that up a week, it, it doesn't actually open on the same day now as Spider-Verse. Oh, it does? Wow. Yeah, so... That's crazy. Well, I guess the argument at Disney is that, you know, Poppins has been testing through the roof. They were a cinema event in... uh, Or an industry event in Europe earlier this month where they they showed them, you know, some sequences out of Wreck-It Ralph. They showed them some Toy Story 4 footage. And they showed them an entire dance sequence musical number from Mary Poppins Returns. And... The audience evidently lost its mind. So, you know, Disney believes that this is going to be a monstrous, monstrous hit in much the same way as you moved up Infinity Wars to take advantage of what you believed was going to be a big success. That's they've, They're doing that with Poppins. Well, I will have a lot to talk about with Poppins. Like, we can't say anything yet, but there is definitely a animation live-action sequence in the movie paying homage to the, the original film that both Pixar and Walt Disney Animation Studios had a hand in. Get ready for that! Okay, well, to tell you what, folks, we'll talk about that scene that may or may not feature penguins <laughs> in a future episode of Fine Tuning. But for now, thanks for listening in, and on behalf of myself and Mr. Taylor, have a wonderful day. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.